Our sermon text this morning is found in Job chapter 28. We're not going to read the whole chapter, just verses 12 to 23. Job chapter 28 in the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 12. This is Job speaking. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it's not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me, and the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onks or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We're taking scenes from Job over seven Sundays. Job is 42 chapters long, so we're, we're not being exhaustive. But we are getting the core story. And it's a faith story. A story not about suffering, but a story about faith in suffering. A story about how it is possible. It's not necessarily likely. Uh, for a lot of people, this hasn't been true. But for Job, he does show us the possibility of having every human benefit for believing in God, trusting in God, every human benefit stripped away and yet still trusting. That's the story of Job. And today is our fifth of seven looks into Job's story. And we're going to focus on what he repeats here in chapter 28. Notice if you're looking at Job 28 that you get the same thing in verses 12 and 20, verse 12, he asks the question, where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Says much the same thing in verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? Job has been tested. He's been tested beyond his normal operational capacity. To put this in the language of stress testing. I thought of stress testing because uh, a lot of things can be stress tested. You can stress test software programs. You can stress test uh, financial institutions. You can stress test engines. You can stress test the human heart. You can even stress test the doctor that works on the heart. I have such one doctor here. I just finished reading a book by a vascular surgeon from the UK named David Knott, N-O-T-T. For years, uh, Dr. David Knott has traveled uh, into war zones all around the world uh, and done uh, humanitarian surgeries. And I found his story fascinating, all his experiences from Sarajevo in the early 90s as the Balkan conflict raged uh, all the way to uh, modern-day Syria, which has been blown apart by civil war. How many times uh, Dr. David Knott's own life has been at risk in these places that he's gone, Europe, Africa, Middle East, Asia, so many places where he has 
been to do surgery, seeing the same kinds of injuries from bullets and bomb blasts year after year after year. It can take its toll. And in one place, he writes about uh, getting to lunch with Queen Elizabeth. It wasn't just him, but there was a lunch held in his honor and other, uh, others like him that the queen wanted to honor. It was held at Buckingham Palace. And David Knott had recently returned from Syria. And he was still in the, the, just the fog of what he had seen and experienced there. This trip to Syria had been uh, the worst of war carnage that he'd seen because it involved so many children. He was doing surgery on children whom snipers had been aiming at, and they'd been aiming at pregnant women. And so day after day, uh, these were being brought in and bomb blasts on top of that. And it it really had gotten to him this time around. It deeply distressed him. Not that it hadn't in times before, but this time there were just too many kids, one after another, and pregnant women losing their, their unborn children. It was just cruel what was going on, and he had been... He, had, he just had his face in this and his hands in this. And, and so he said that even though he knew it was a great honor uh, to, to be invited to Buckingham Palace and to dine with the queen, and he actually was sat right next to her, he said he, he just wasn't into it. And this is how he describes what happened next. He said the dessert arrived finally. He wanted to get out of there. But the queen turned to me. At first, I I couldn't hear what she was asking me. My hearing had been damaged by a bomb blast near the hospital in Aleppo. And so I I tried to speak, but then nothing would come out of my mouth. It wasn't that I didn't want to speak to her. I just couldn't. I simply didn't know what to say. She asked me where I'd come from. I suppose she was expecting me to tell her somewhere in the UK and we would talk about home. But I told her I'd recently returned from Aleppo in Syria. Oh, she said. And what was that like? What was it like? What could I say? My mind filled instantly with images of toxic dust, of crushed school desks, of bloodied and limbless children, of those Westerners that I had known who had been beheaded by ISIS. I don't know why it happened then or why it should have been the queen who breached the dam. Perhaps it's because she's the mother of the nation and I'd lost my own mother, but my bottom lip started to go and all I wanted to do was burst into tears. But I held myself together as best I could. I hoped she wouldn't ask me another question about Aleppo because I knew if she did, I would completely lose control in her presence. She looked at me quizzically and touched my hand. She then had a quiet word with one of the courtiers who pointed to a silver box in front of her. I watched as she opened the box, which was full of biscuits. These are for the dogs, she said, breaking one of the biscuits in two and giving me half. We fed biscuits to the corgis under the table and for the rest of the lunch she took the lead in chatting about her dogs telling me how many she had what their names were how old they were all the while we're stroking and petting the dogs and my anxiety and distress drained away there the queen said that's so much better than talking isn't it he says queen elizabeth's instinctive insight into my emotional fragility was remarkable as was the compassion she showed towards somebody she had never met. But although an embarrassing scene had been narrowly averted, it did not change the fact that I was not well. That story from David Knott, it reminded me of Job. As I was finishing the book a couple weeks ago, I thought, you know, that, that's kind of like Job in that Job would have so loved 
for someone to just be sensitive and compassionate in regard to his shattered state. But even so, even if that had been the case, as it was in the beginning, when the friends first come and sit with him and they don't say anything, they just try to share for seven days in his grief, and that's the best thing they did, their silence and sitting with him. Even so, he still wasn't going to be well, not for a long time. Stress tested. The goal of it, stress testing, is to see if the thing you're testing can withstand, can survive being pushed beyond its normal operational capacity. That's what's happened to Job's faith. This is a, a faith story, a, a story of faith being stress tested by all that happened to Job. He doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes, but he knows what's gone on in his life and, it, and it's been harsh, including how his friends have chapter after chapter, now to chapter 28, the friends have only ratcheted up they're grilling him because they are so sure. They've convinced themselves beyond doubt. There had to be hidden sin in Job. They're, they knew it. And so they were no help alleviating his distress. They only added to it. Between chapter 19, we looked at last week, and now chapter 28, Job's three friends have been merciless with him. By the time chapter 28 arrives, however, it's, it's kind of like Job calls a time out, sort of. He's been heatedly arguing for 27 chapters, uh, the chapters before this. He's been heatedly arguing his case, his case to God. You know, chapter 13, verse 15, we just sang it uh, in the song right before the scripture reading. Though he slay me, yet I will put my hope in him, and yet I will argue my ways to his face. He's been doing that. He's been arguing with his friends. But in chapter 28, he softens. There's a, there's a change in tone in chapter 28. It, it goes from being more combative to more reflective. And in this chapter, it, it, he softens, and it's, it's almost like he says, well, well let's think about this, this whole idea of wisdom what it means to understand something. He's been venting his frustrations, arguing his righteousness, not in any self-righteous way, but defending himself against this judgment of his friends that, that somehow he did something to merit all of this trouble and pain and tragedy, which the subliminal message in that is that Job isn't righteous. He's just been putting on, and now the mask is off, and now we see oh, you really are a, an unrighteous guy. This is the perspective of the friends and, and therefore that, that's why you're suffering. You know, if you've ever had a heated argument and if, if I had people seated in front of me this morning, here is where I could say some of you had one on the way here. You know? I mean, every, it's every Sunday there's some couple that's just had this, this uh, you know, argument before they come into the room. Um, but you know, you, you've had heated arguments. I, I've had heated arguments. And yet there can come a point in a heated argument where the heat simmers down and it gives way to light. You know, you, you, uh, you, the, the tone softens. 
or, or you start to believe the, the, the person you're arguing with is actually making sense and is, is right uh, about something. And, or you ask the question, you know, what, what, do you think the real, what do you think the real issue is right here now? Let, let's, let's tone it down and, and try to get to what we think really is going on. Chapter 28 is kind of like that in feel. Job has been just, you know, reaching in the humid darkness that has become his life, reaching for an answer, trying to find some point of stability. It's faith-seeking understanding for him. But now he says twice, verse 12, verse 20, well, let's think about wisdom and understanding, guys. You three... My friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, you've known me for so long. You have been touting your wisdom to me. Earlier in chapter 12, Job said, no, no doubt, you are the guys and wisdom will die with you. He said that in frustration. He says, you know, it's obvious you each think you're wise, and you believe that I need what you believe you need to give me. But how do any of us have anything to give? Where, where does wisdom come from? What is wisdom? My world, if, if my world has been turned upside down, as you guys recognize, Job saying to his friends, in essence, if my world has been turned upside down, and I, as a wisdom seeker, Someone who you just days before thought was a wise man. If I can't make sense of this, nor can you, how do we know the why of anything? And Job's not being cynical. He, he's being reflective. If we read the whole chapter, we didn't, but if we, we did, we would see that Job draws upon mining uh, as a metaphor for wisdom gained. And that's a very interesting thing to, to draw upon as your analogy, mining, because mining has always been a danger-filled occupation. From ancient times in which Job lived all the way to now, you have to go, it, it's still a danger-filled occupation. You have to go down into the earth to mine out the valuables that, that are there. And so Job says, early part in the chapter here, we didn't read it, early part of chapter 28, he says, uh, you know, men risk their lives to go way down into the earth to find its valuables. And is not the search for wisdom also as demanding and maybe even as dangerous? And could it be, is it possible, there's wisdom gained in and through suffering? In other words, he's saying to his friends, you, you, your perspective is that nothing is gained from suffering except due punishment, judgment. That's what's happening to me. But let's take a step back. It's obvious you each think uh, you're wise, you're spouting, and you're spouting these, these answers to me. He says to his friends, it's, it's, like, you've got, it's like you've got these little spade shovels, little kid shovels. And you're digging around me and you're digging under me. Sure, you know what's wrong. But if, he, if you were in my place, you wouldn't be so sure. He says, I perceive there's much going on that we don't see. 
And so his analogy for this is, just like there are valuables way under the ground and, and no one sees them until someone risks himself to go down into the earth and mine these things out, perhaps the same thing is, in, is going on in my situation. Perhaps there's this shaft that I've been taken into where, where I'm being taught some things that, that I don't know why I'm being taught and you don't know why either. Or to shift the metaphor, there, there, there's this backstage to what God is doing and I don't have passes to any reason why and neither do you. He's asking his friends to consider, is that, is that possible? Now, they won't consider it. But that's chapter 28. I'm summarizing it for you. Chapter 28 is Job saying, let's take a step back and ask wisdom questions of what's happening here. And the friends, they, they can't. They won't. Job's friends are not wise. They think they are. They would swear they have the gift of discernment, you know, and, and, and will use it because it's their gift, whether Job is going to receive it or, or not. I've been there a few times with some people. And that's their part, you know. Their part is to speak the truth. But in reality, they're not wise. And rather than just keep having this back and forth with them as he's been having... Rather than that, this back and forth, merely accusing them of not being wise, Job wants them now, well, let's take this approach. Would you just consider with me why you may not be? Could you just consider with me that you may not be as wise as you think you are? Now, of course, they won't consider with him, which is why they're not wise. I don't mean to put this in a cyclical way, but... They're, they're too self-important in their surety. They've already crossed their line of no return. They embody closed-mindedness once convinced. And you can't reason with that. In, in fact, God himself will tell them. God himself will speak from heaven at the last chapter of Job, chapter 42, God himself will address the three friends and say, what you have said about me is not right. God will in essence tell them, you're not wise. You're not as wise as you think you are. And I'm going to have my servant Job pray for you. I wonder if they got the message even then. The reason the friends aren't wise, and I wanted to take at least one sermon to talk about this because the the friends even though we haven't done a lot of reading hardly any reading of what they've said if you go back and read hopefully you've been reading Job this month the reason the friends are not wise is they they've they've made a, a confusion they live in a confusion and the confusion they live in is they've confused needing to judge with making wise judgments this is a, a, a very common confusion. They've confused needing to judge with making wise judgments. Many who need to judge, they need to pronounce, they need to opinionate, they need to insert their viewpoint. Many who do that will consider themselves wise and discerning. 
They'll, they'll think sometimes uh, this is the outworking of that. And look, we all make judgments. Please hear me say that. We all make judgments. Uh, every one of us make judgments. Nobody is neutral about everything. And judgments need to be made. And wisdom needs to inform judgments. But needing to judge is not wisdom. It's something else. Needing to judge is often motivated by a critical spirit that turns high-minded, will generally uh, scorn and shame the person it's contesting with, uh, is very self-justifying, a critical spirit is, needs to feel more righteous than the people it believes to be wrong. People in whom a critical spirit resides it is almost impossible to get them to see it and look any of us any of us myself included can have this and it needs to be pulled out of us when we do you know uh, however it gets into us it needs to be pulled out of us and we need the, the Spirit of God to do that for us. And I believe he works that way. But when you have a critical spirit, uh, the one thing you cannot risk is being mistaken. And, and in, in that, when you cannot be mistaken about the thing that is so important that you, you believe you, you know that you know and, and you will assert and you don't, it doesn't matter necessarily uh, how, how many people you drive, what you're right. Inevitably, there's a humility deficit in that, inevitably. When you've taken upon yourself, see, Job's friends give us the opportunity to, to think about this in our own community as evangelical Christians. When you've taken upon yourself the identity of the watchdog, and some of us do that. Some of us are, 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 are always paranoid and, and nervous about you know, wrong doctrine. Or somebody's going to say something wrong from the poor. Some, somebody's going to do something wrong. There's going to be a wrong song. There's going to be a, a wrong interpretation. You know, it's, we're always nervous about this, some of us. And some of us will take the step of appointing ourselves the watchdog. And the problem in that becomes you end up biting your own people. See, I, I welcome healthy discernment. I've been blessed by healthy discernment. I, I, I would be a fool not to welcome healthy discernment. Because healthy discernment, when it's corrective, it, it's not always corrective. But when it's corrective, when healthy discernment is corrective... It, it does so. It has the quality of correcting but not attacking. Correcting but not misconstruing. In other words, I, I, if, if you need to correct me, I need to be able to recognize myself in your correction. If you're saying, well, you're guilty of teaching this. I, I've never taught that. Yeah, you have. That's what I heard. No, that's what you've heard. That's not what I've taught. Or you, you meant this by what you said. I didn't mean that. It came out awkwardly. It was... I need to apologize for how I phrase. Yeah, well, you, you know, we just, why do we, why do we do this? But we do this. In fact, uh, a lot of our relational friction in the church is because of this very dynamic. Uh, 
healthy discernment corrects without attacking or misconstruing. It doesn't always correct, but when it does, it, it has that quality. Uh, all of us need correction from time to time. You know, uh, with my youngest, uh, who's 13, I've tried to make the point to him at points, and I've done this at times poorly uh, by my own admission to him, but I've tried to help him understand correction is something we all get, not just you when you've done something that needs correcting. Your dad gets corrected at times. I've had elders pull me aside. I've had Taylor Park pull me aside and say, uh, different, do it differently. Rethink that. Came across harsh. I've had to apologize to our staff at times and, and people in the staff. I, I need correction. I need people of discernment who say, look, that, that seemed off. It, it seemed to come from a, a, a bad spirit. Uh, and, and I'm helped by that. I've been helped many times. I've needed correction as a husband and a father and a, a pastor and a friend and a citizen. Just move the circles on out. But when a critical spirited person comes and offers that, man, I tell you, it, it just... Uh, you're just left feeling like you've been run over, like you've been misunderstood, uh, like you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Uh, when you have a critical spirit, uh, you have this unhealthy interest in offering correction. That's, that's how you can tell. It's, it's the person who's always correcting or or trying so hard to bite their tongue not to, you know. I mean, and they will eventually because they just can't stand it. An unhealthy interest in offering correction, that is a humility deficiency. But, but, but people who have a critical spirit often just can't make that connection. And I've worked with them, a number of them. I, I've tried to work with at points. We've just come to a point where, where it's just... You just, you, just can't, you just can't continue. Um, they don't understand the difference between coming to you with a concern and coming at you. And so all the hills rising before them on their horizon, they're all worth dying on. You know, every theological issue is weighted with equal, equal firmness. Uh, everything, anything is worth breaking fellowship over if they determine it to be, and, and I feel for these folks because I think at, at heart a lot of them are lonely and they don't really understand how to be a friend. And so I feel for them in this, but it's also so aggravating when you're, when you're like Job is, when you're, when you're being treated as his friends were, were treating him with these critical spirits and, and they prayed about it too, you know. That means, well, I mean, then God has signed off on what you think, I, you know. And then that leads to dismissiveness and perhaps even disdain. I mean, nine times out of ten, that's, that's what goes on. Look, Job's friends had a critical spirit. Um, in that... They could not be wrong when it came to Job. They took that position. They couldn't even be mistaken. I mean, they couldn't even have a wrong angle 
on him. And in view of this, by way of these questions that Job poses, I, I think Job makes a tactical decision in chapter 28 to say, okay, the arguing is not working. Obviously, you're totally convinced. Can we step back and maybe consider together how wisdom works and what understanding is? Would you meet me there and we can begin maybe working it out from there? That's what happens in chapter 28. And in view of this, by way of Job posing these questions that he poses in chapter 28, verses 12 and 20, I want to give us just one heading this morning and two takeaways within the one heading. So the one heading is, is um, the difference between making a, a right judgment and needing to judge. That's essentially what you find is the fault line in the perspectives of Job's friends. It's not that they make right judgments. It's that they need to judge. They need to hold Job responsible. It's, it's the way that they, they, have to, they have to deal with their own insecurity this way. You know, because if what, if what happened to Job, if he's righteous and that can happen to him, then then that maybe could happen to us, and we don't want that happening to us. And furthermore, so what I, I want us to consider is the difference between making a right judgment and needing to judge. A, a right judgment is wisdom at work. When you make a right judgment, all of us make judgments. There is, not, there is no such thing as a non-judgmental person. You can be judgmental in the sense that you are uh, condemning and alienating, and, and you don't have any relational integrity, but all of us make judgments. Nobody is neutral. And so the question is, do we make right judgments? What goes into account in our making our judgments? This is what we see in the friends, what's missing in the friends. A right judgment is wisdom at work. Needing to judge is something less than wisdom at work. And so our takeaways are going to be two. How to make a right judgment and how not to need to judge. That's kind of awkwardly phrased, but how to make a right judgment and how not to need to judge. So first, how to make a right judgment. One thing, we need to learn how to think. If you're going to make a right judgment, the first reality is to learn how to think which begins with recognizing that none of us think for ourselves. Alan Jacobs wrote a book called How to Think, which can make Alan Jacobs sound like a really presumptuous guy. Oh, you're going to tell us how to think. Wow. Thank you, Professor Jacobs. But it's not like that. It's actually a book that's a great service to the church, particularly as evangelicals find ourselves today um, just engaging in the culture war in these ways that kind of shut down uh, discussion and, and, and reflection on what's happening and tries to build bridges. Um, Alan Jacobs' book, How to Think, uh, he points out that we unthinkingly accept the idea that we think for ourselves. But he, he shows that nobody thinks for themselves. Nobody is an independent thinker. You've never had an original thought. You've had your thoughts. Somebody else had that thought. Of all the billions of people who've ever lived through the eons, none of us think for ourselves. 
Every one of us think always in concert with others, always. What wisdom tasks us with doing is developing the kind of discernment, not out on your own. People who say, well, I'm trying to develop my discernment and they're marked by independence and prickliness. and no, They're not developing discernment. So we don't develop discernment on our own. We, we develop it among others, with others we consider to be wise. And developing that kind of discernment means we, we, we don't enter isolation chambers where you only hear the voices you're already in 100% agreement with, the voices that tell you what you want to hear. We're all tempted in that direction. But wisdom works out the muscles of discernment so that we come to see our chief need is not to be self-assured that I'm always right about every single thing that I could ever possibly form an opinion about. Do you never agonize over your opinions, some of you? How you came to them? Do you ever change your mind? Do you ever admit you were wrong about something? Do you realize you do, actually, if you're wise? Another indication that you know how to make right judgments, which is the outworking of wisdom, is not just learning how to think, but uh, developing what I'll call cognitive modesty, cognition, thinking, cognitive modesty. You know, we didn't read verse 28. Chapter 28 has 28 verses. We only read through verse 23. But chapter 28, Job answers his own question. He poses the question, verses 12 and 20, where is wisdom? Where's the place of understanding? And then he says, last verse, verse 28, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Echoing the Proverbs. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Look at it, verse 28. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. You know what the fear of the Lord is? It's cognitive modesty. That's what it leads to. I don't know everything, so I'm not going to act like I know everything. God is God, and I am not. I am his servant. And that doesn't mean, as his servant, that I, I know everything or even know a, a little of everything. I may know uh, much less than I think I know, probably do. I love that verse in Corinthians, now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. I think knowing in part is knowing in part. God is doing things I can't always account for. He's always doing more than we know. I, I take that as a truism of life. I live by that. So there's a cap. There's a, a set limitation on what I can know in any direction. God will say to these friends at the end of the book of Job, as I've already told you, you have not spoken what is right about me, and yet their words take up chapters in your Bible. The Bible gives us the truth. It gives us the truth of when people are in error. And I just find that fascinating that God says at the end of the book where these men 
words are chapters in our Bible. You have not spoken what is right about me, but still permitted them to speak it. Happens all the time. You know, occasionally you'll run into people in the church who hear any appeal to mystery theologically, a respect for limitation, the cognitive modesty to say, you know, I, I think that's right, but I don't know that I want to go further than that. And you always have people who want to go further than that. And so they say, well, well I mean, they hear mystery as mysticism. You know? There's always a segment of evangelicals who believe the way to do theology is to proof text your way through a topic and then go after whoever doesn't see it the same way. Wisdom should humble us. It should make us confident, not in our own opinions, but confident in Christ, who he is for us. Wisdom humbles us that way. As well as clarifies for us, wisdom clarifies for us how much evil is yet in my own heart. The end of verse 28, to turn away from evil is understanding. See, what we think of as evil is obvious corruption. Horror films, you know. The stuff that goes on in the dens of iniquity around the world. But the fact that Job's friends needed to hear themselves, think about this. The fact they needed to hear themselves making pronouncements on Job in order to secure their point of view, reward themselves for having it, justify themselves against any assertion to the contrary, is that not also evil? It is. Sure it is. Those are expressions of evil. When we consider that evil is fundamentally a corruption of what's good. And the good of understanding is being corrupted. Back in chapter 20, when Zophar, the third friend, speaks and responds to Job. We looked at chapter 19 last week in that great section where I know there's a redeemer. I know I'm going to be vindicated. You know what Zophar's response to that is? Chapter 20, verse 3, I hear a censure that insults me, and out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. Understanding. Ding, 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 ding. The same word later in chapter 28, verses 12 and 20. Where shall wisdom be found? Where's the place of understanding? Job says, okay, so far, let's meet you there. Verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? understanding so far says I know the place I go there all the time and so I, I can't I understand more than you do Job and so I, I I'm not going to let you knock me off my pedestal Job's friends demonstrate what it looks like when we dig in and cannot let go of the narrative we are so heavily invested in Theirs was Job did something to deserve his misfortune. In that book of Alan Jacobs, How to Think, he introduces readers to the repugnant cultural other, the RCO. We all have those we consider the other from us. And when somebody goes to the classification of the other, there's nothing we can learn from them. They are devoid of wisdom. So they don't think like us. They don't feel the same way about issues like we do. Maybe these are elites. Maybe they're academics. Maybe they're media figures. Maybe they're on the other side of the political aisle from you. Or they don't have the same theological striping and spotting that you have. 
And what we do is, Jacob says, in the repugnant cultural other, we, we define ourselves in opposition to people and then we cannot allow those people to clarify anything for us, even if they speak the truth. We just can't allow it. So when this takes over us, we become more defined by what we're against than what we're for. Job's friends, they're against unrighteousness. Ask them. They'll tell you. Eloquently, they're against unrighteousness. Who shouldn't be? We belong to God. But every square peg had to fit in those round holes. They think Job has to be guilty of some spectacular unrighteousness, and that's why he's been served up all this pain. And the more they spoke to him about it, the more they defined themselves in opposition to Job, thinking Job to be wrong, the friends took the next step that Job just could not be right about anything. And when they arrived at that point, that's where they began to need to judge him. That's not turning ourselves away from evil. That's giving ourselves to a self-righteous kind of evil. And so our second takeaway, and we're done. How to not need to judge. When you need to judge, it's because you've taken to yourself a certain way of looking at God and looking at people and looking at the world that's primarily defensive. And when you take that kind of defensive posture, oftentimes it turns divisive. I've just seen it too many times. It, it follows a very familiar pattern, a tragic pattern, but familiar. The tragedy is that relationships are lost. Opportunity to work together, never, never realized. Needing to judge is an expression of deep personal insecurity. When we think the world needs to be continuously confronted and, and we, we give off the vibe that we think people need to be continually questioned and held in check and suspicioned and God needs his honor defended and we're the, you know, we're the ones that'll do it, though he's never asked us to. What happens is in the heart of the one who needs to judge, they need to be continually confirmed comes from deep insecurity. And so how do we get out of that? How do we not need to judge? Well, we have to square up. We have to square up with what it means for God to put all of the judgment he should put on you and me, to take it all and put it on Jesus in our place, and then we find security in what Jesus thinks of us, what Jesus has done for us, only his work on our behalf, removing the condemnation of deserved judgment from us. Only that has the power to, to pull out, to extract this, uh, this need we have, some of us, to judge others. Some of us have an opinion on everything. Bless your heart. And you so often go spouting off on this or that. And you get hard to fellowship with when you do. It's like, it's like, we, can turn a, it's like we can turn a little hourglass over on you and we just watch the sands go out until, until you will remove yourself from us. Because we're not good enough for you. Because we don't see it the same way you see it. We don't do it and say it the same way that you do it and say it. And you become one of Job's friends. 
we have to square up with, I, I'm kind of haunted. I'll just say this and be done. We're kind of haunted. I'm kind of haunted by the words of Jesus in Luke 14. There's a place in Luke 14 where he says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We've got a lot of salty Christians in the sense that they love to fight. They love the fight. They love to fight online. They love to fight in person. They love to fight the church staff, the Sunday school teacher, the elders. They fight. Uh, we've got a lot of Christians who, who think that owning the libs, you know, that, that, that mocking and running down liberals is, is a new Christian virtue. Maybe it's back in 2 Peter 1. They're not your enemies, those folks. They're people who need to be redeemed, as do a lot of conservatives. I wonder if our saltiness these ways is evidenced, uh, is evidence itself that we've lost our salt, our witness. Because I look around evangelicalism and I, I, I see a lot more running to consider ourselves conservative than considering ourselves Christian, as if the two are equated, as if the two are synonymous. I wonder if our saltiness, as evidenced in our easygoing condemnation now of people we differ with, if this isn't indicative that we really aren't salt anymore. And what Jesus says in Luke 14, <clears throat> if you need to judge, if you need to secure yourself by making all the judgments you do all the time, how would you like to hear the Son of God say to you, you would ruin manure? Because that's what he says in Luke 14. You're not salt, you're just salty. You don't promote light, just heat. How to not need to judge, I have to square up with, I have to rest in, and you do too, how God has every right to say to me, you would ruin manure, but he doesn't say it. Not to those in Christ. He has every right to say to me, you've got everything about me wrong. But he doesn't do it. What does he do instead? He covers us. He lavishes his love upon us, his infinite grace. We don't get condemnation from him. We get mercy. We get truth. And if that gets drilled down in you, what happens is it gets drilled down is it pushes out that need to judge. We don't, what have we been given in Christ? Not, not the queen with her tin of biscuits, dog biscuits, to feed the corgis under the table. Though she showed great sensitivity, helping a man take his mind off himself. That's great as far as it goes. But you know, you get further with the Lord. We get the king of everything stepping into the place of judgment on our behalf, not to make us feel better about ourselves. But by, by way of doing that, he tells us the naked truth of ourselves. You deserve judgment. You should be condemned. But I'm not doing that to you. We don't get what we have coming because God in his merciful judgment makes a way. One way. 
He makes a way for us to get free of his condemnation and others' condemnation of us and self-condemnation. And by the way, when I string those three things together, God's condemnation, others' condemnation, self-condemnation, they're not equal. I think of Madeline Langle. Uh, I just was reading her book, finishing her book yesterday, Walking on Water. She says there was years ago she gave an interview to a Christian magazine in which she uh, explained that we're all limited by our points of view. And she said, you know, I have a point of view and you, the interviewer, have a point of view. And then she says, but God has view. And she was very emphatic about that, except she found out later an over-diligent editor took what she said and translated it as, uh, I have a point of view, you have a point of view, and God has a point of view. And she said, I wrote back to that magazine in white heat, her anger. You have put error into my mouth. I did not say that. I said that I have a point of view and people have a point of view and God has view. God sees it all. No limitations. He has the thing itself. Only he makes thoroughly right judgments. And when I square with that in truth, it begins to pull from me the need to judge in a way that tears down rather than builds up. The one with view sees us, not just as we are, but as we will become as recipients of his grace and wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making your wisdom available to us. Help us in our weakness, in our running off with a part of the story, thinking we have the whole uh, Lord, we are um, in need of serving you, not making service to you more difficult. And so help us, Lord, as we think about Job's friends. Thank you for including them. Thank you for your mercies to them in this book by having Job pray for them at the end. Thank you, Lord, that uh, with you, mercies are new every morning. And your faithfulness indeed is great. We thank you that as a holy God who only had to judge us, you yet made a way and that this is in glorification of your holiness as well, that you are the only wise God who is merciful to people who need your truth and care. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.